Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When I practiced law for a living many years ago, I didn't much care for the work. When I worked at a museum, people envied what I did. How can I get a job like that, they asked. Now that I teach history for a living, people still mistakenly wonder the same thing. But every once in a while I find somebody where I wonder how can I get their job. That's the kind of person we're talking to today, Dr. Timothy B. Smith, National Park Service Ranger at the Shiloh National Military Park and author of Champion Hill Decisive Battle for Vicksburg. Join us with Timothy B. Smith on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you painfully shy? Do you wonder if you'll spend your life alone? Come on, Mr. Turtle, out of that shell. Introduce yourself to a Sky High Airlines friend maker flight. Non-stop, hardly. Non-stop fun? You better believe it. Four stops between Seattle and Portland. Eight between L.A. and Phoenix. That's eight chances to meet new friends. Stop and twist and meet a collector of beanbag pets. A layover in Eugene means a chat with a taxidermist who loves to overshare. Turn seatmates into soulmates. I've met dozens of potential life partners, and that's just since Tucson. Sky High Airlines friend maker flight. There are no friends. On Sky High, only strangers you haven't met. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's, it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leads each and every one of them with with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, the audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Stallneck, at russisfunny.com because, well, Russ's chubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking to you from Greenville, North Carolina. This week... May 2006, not from the campus of East Carolina University, where my spacious office sits, but at home uh, doing child care duty on a Friday afternoon and having the opportunity to join you in some discussion of Civil War issues. Before we start, uh, there's always the uh, financial business to talk about, usually the, the whimpering about donations. Donations are always welcome as ever but also the commercials that uh, World Talk Radio lines up for this show. If anyone has a Civil War-related business of any sort or just wants to hear their name on the Internet uh, being uh, mentioned repeatedly, uh, get in touch with the people at World Talk Radio and buy a commercial from them because the ones they're using to fill the space now are getting stranger every week. And uh, 
the self-esteem of the Civil War enthusiast must be going down weekly as we listen to things telling us, I think, last week that our livers were, were too fat and this week that we don't have any friends and need to meet new people on airplanes. Uh, it's, it's getting worse. But we know, in fact, uh, we don't need any of these things and we can uh, live our lives as well-adjusted people, even if we are yet fascinated by the events of the 1860s. And uh, today's guest, uh, certainly no exception to these things, uh, Dr. Timothy B. Smith, ranger at the Shiloh National Military Park. Tim, are you there? Hello, Jerry. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Doing fine. Doing fine. Thanks for calling in today. Good to uh, hear from you again. Yeah. We, uh, I think you and I met at, at the park a few years ago. We did. Uh-huh. Uh, I was, I was I with a tour group. Uh, yeah, you're talking about jobs that you wish you could have now. <laughs> you were on one of those steamboats, touring steamboats. Now, that that's yeah. nice work if you can get it. I'll, exactly. I will recommend it yeah. highly. Yeah. If, if anyone listening can get a gig as a lecturer on a steamboat, uh, talking about Civil War sites as you sail around, uh, uh, Richard McMurray has done that, Harold Holzer, many of our other guests have done that. It's really fun. Uh, and the experience of approaching Shiloh from the water side is... is exactly. Uh, is Historically. Fun. But let me, let's let's talk about you. Um, I, I was not kidding, uh, barely exaggerating when I say, uh, how do you get such a great job as to be a ranger at a national military park? Uh, how, how did you get yours? Well, uh, <clears throat> that's a long story, and I doubt you have time for it. So I'll give you the um, the kind of overview of it. It, it. Basically, it's not easy. Uh, just like the the professor positions in major universities there are a lot more people wanting those positions than there are uh, positions to be had i actually um, got started up here at shallow in uh, back when i was in graduate school at mississippi state i had grown up in central mississippi of course and um, we visited vicksburg and shallow repeatedly and and i've always had always thought shallow would be my dream job but i never really you know, thought seriously about it, didn't think I would ever get an opportunity. But in graduate school, I was sent up here by Mike Ballard, Civil War enthusiast. We'll know Mike Ballard down at Mississippi State. Uh, he's the archivist there, and he had a contract with the National Park Service uh, working on the archives up here. So he hired graduate students to go work for him, so he hired me. I came up here and basically just uh, didn't leave until they gave me a job. And that's uh, been very fortunate for me. So I owe it all to, to Mike Ballard. You know that's interesting because you're uh, the technical term in the field is that you are a practitioner of public history. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a subject that I teach here at East Carolina, because I worked in a museum for many years. But you and I both got into public history then, as I would say, almost all of our contemporaries did. Not because we thought, let's be public historians, but we had an interest in history and. The dice just rolled that way. Right, exactly. And the way I look at it, I don't know how you looked at it when you were at the Lincoln Museum, but um, to me it's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, I have the the public history side, and, and you bet there's not a better job on earth than, than Shiloh National Military Park. Uh, but I also have the academic side that, uh, of course, uh, graduate school and all that, I, I can still do the publishing and so on. So uh, to me it's the, the best of both worlds. I, I would agree with you. There were times I thought my, my position at, at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne was uh, the best historical job in the country. I had unlimited access to a, a wonderful archive. I had uh, opportunity to work with people all around the country, and yet not the same pressure that that teachers have to right. grade papers or 
worry about tenure and so on. Right. But let me do say, uh, I did say it was a, a hard position to attain. Once uh, they call us in the National Park Service the Cannonball Parks, once you get in that, uh, people don't tend to list to leave, and um, and they they make long careers out of it. But let me caution anybody out there that uh, may be interested in working for the National Park Service. Don't give up. I mean, I was a long shot. And it happened for me, so uh, don't don't give up. If that's if that's your dream, go for it. And who knows, it it might very well happen. I, th- I think that's good advice. I think we're seeing more people now are being trained in public history, with an eye toward that kind of position. Exactly. Well, a lot of departments are coming up with these these public history, historic preservation departments, and so on. So it's. it's what do you think about that? Do you think that's a, a, a positive development? Negative? Mixed? I think so. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but uh, I know a lot of uh, universities are, are turning that direction. Of course, we have Middle Tennessee State University up here mm-hmm. uh, fairly close to us, and there are several other campuses around that I can think of that uh, have degrees in public history or historic preservation. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a field that, that uh, has been woefully lacking in past years. Uh, maybe is not looked at as quite as academic, but I think very much so it is. Well, I think that's been a problem in the field is that people who do the kind of work you do, for example, if you go to the uh, to a regional convention, Southern Historical Association or national meeting, uh, you are not looked at as one of the community. You're, you're you're not one of the anointed if you're not in a history department in a university. Well, yeah, you get all that ivory tower stuff. But, you do, and uh, I think it's unfortunate. You know that uh, you just kind of have to to make your way through it. I think, and uh, and, and, and eventually, itself. I think the field will change. People are going to realize that somebody who's publishing work like you're doing uh, exactly yeah. is uh, is not any less a historian uh, because they don't teach the U.S. History Survey. Right. Exactly. Uh, well, that, that hopefully will change. I'll, I'll share a concern I have is that some of these public history programs are going to over-theoreticize themselves. And instead of people like you who actually practice being the ones who teach those courses, you're going to get people who, who study public history and then become the teachers of the next public history generation without ever no going field getting their hands dirty. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that could be a problem. I could, uh, you know, it, it to me, this is one of those things that has to be very carefully guarded. That um, the people that are interested in it are are passionate about it and and do the field work and and uh, place their people in important positions like that to carry it on. But yeah, I understand what what you're talking about. That that is a danger. So, what do you do on a day to day basis at at Shiloh? Oh, gee whiz, you name it, and and we do it. We're um, <clears throat> The, one of the common conceptions of the National Park Service is that uh, you have a, a certain person for a certain job, like uh, you have somebody that does, you know, web work, and then somebody that does law enforcement, and then somebody that does strictly, you know, pigeonhole jobs, and that rarely is the case. Now, you get at a big, huge park like Grand Canyon or somewhere like that, and they, they may have somebody to, to just do web work the whole time. Um, Smaller parks, which I would say probably 80, 90% of the parks out there are very small, fairly low budget and short staffed, just like we are here. Um, we're kind of jack of all trades. You, I, for instance, I do a lot of the history stuff, of course, answering a lot of correspondence and, uh, and, uh, answering questions, leading tours. Uh, I do the, the Civil War 
round table tours type type stuff in depth tours i do the military groups uh we have lots and lots of staff rides come in um fort campbell is nearby of course they're back in iraq now so we hadn't seen them in a in a little while but uh, fort knox fort leonard wood they bring groups all the time so i spend a day on the battlefield with them uh teaching them the the lessons of shiloh i'm not trying to teach i always caution them i'm not trying to teach them anything because they know far more about uh, military tactics, especially modern and, and so on than I do, so I always feel kind of reluctant to try to teach them anything, and I, I caution that I'm trying to teach them a historic example that they can, can hopefully learn from. So I do a lot of that stuff. I also uh, do the web work, which uh, I know... Tim, let me step in a minute and, and pick your brain on that, that issue okay. of talking to the, the active duty military. Um, we, we had Hal Nelson on the show last week, the right. former chief of military history. He's done a lot of staff rides at Gettysburg and other places and produced those war college guides you're right. familiar with. Um, you don't. You say you don't try to teach the actual tactics, the military, to the, the soldiers. Right. What kind of value do you think they get out of this historical experience? Well, um, of course, as you well know, tactics have changed tremendously over time. Um, Technology has uh, all of that, so it, it's like almost comparing apples and oranges with uh, in terms of, of tactical maneuvers and formations and so on. What I try to bring out to them, and of course you base it all on the nine principles of war, mass and economy of force and um, uh, unity of command, all that, that stuff, um, those transcend generations and, and uh, technology, uh, tactics, and all of that, those principles of war that were in, involved at Shiloh here are still just as, as much valid in today's military as, as they were back at Shiloh. Uh, leadership, for example. Uh, you can take examples of, of leadership here and, uh, and talk about, you know, why they failed, why they didn't, why they were, you know, a certain leader did, did well. Um, just in an overall view, you can you can um, look at the campaign here. I always bring out, of course, logistics is a major thing. Uh, you can bring out the fact that, that the Federals use the, the river, of course, to get here. They're going after the railroads, and, of course, there are roads in between. Uh, and it's very similar to what's going on in Iraq today. You know, you see those road patrols, and, and they're trying to, to uh, hold different positions and, and keep the... Um, the insurgency down. I remember back in the first Gulf War, uh, they were bombing bridges. They would bomb the end of the bridges, you know, to cut off those routes, the highway of death, the Republican Guard, all of that. So transportation still, even today, they're fighting over the same thing now that they were in Shiloh 140 years ago, you know. Hmm. So there's a lot, yeah, that, that they can uh, get out of a historic example. Uh, when you Do you have a particular part uh, of the battlefield story that, that you you enjoy or that you find most interesting to share with people? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I enjoy all of it. Most of these tours, even Civil War Roundtable tours and staff rides and so on, you deal mainly with the first day uh, because that's the day, of course, that the battle is decided. By that second day, it's a done deal. And um, so the lessons are learned on the first day. The, the battle is in limbo on the first day, and it's the most dramatic and, and spectacular, I think. So we deal mainly with the with first day uh within that I, there are tons and tons of human interest stories and and just just heart gripping uh accounts that you can talk about the whole death of albert Sidney johnson of course whl wallace and his wife 
showed up at the landing here uh, is is a poignant story. I happen to um, very much enjoy the the story of Shallow after the battle with um, the creation of the park. Of course, I wrote that book on on how the park was established, and uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that you can't understand Shallow and even other battles. Uh, without understanding, of course, first of all, the contemporary sources with, um, you know, the letters and diaries and reports and so on. But you also have to understand the post-battle historiography of how historians and veterans dealt with the battle and the story of the battle uh, to understand how we view that today. So I, I enjoy bringing out those aspects also, how the veterans came back and did what they did. That's that's becoming a very hot topic, the, the memory of the oh, Civil yeah. War and how that memory has changed over time. Uh, and Tom Destrarden wrote that, that very good book on Gettysburg and exactly, how it yeah. evolved. And you've written about Shiloh and how the memory, the, the park there is established and memory established. Um, what do you do? You see a pattern in, in how the veterans remembered things that happened at these battles? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you just have to visit each battlefield, and, and it dawns on you that every battlefield has a sunken road, a peach orchard, a wheat field, a church, a bloody something, you know. <laughs> Um, and how much of that was, I don't think any of it was flagrant trying to change history. You know, I think they they actually believed what they were doing, but it, it probably was tainted a little bit uh, in in the way that um, the story was presented. So, yeah, there, there's some similarities. And I know for a fact, um, particularly in the 1890s, when the first five parks are established, there's quite a lot of... Uh, working together and correspondence back and forth, you know, how did you do this and who did you get to make your cannon carriages, that type of stuff. So so these the similarities in terms of monuments and, and uh, the patterns are partly life imitating art or one one battlefield committee imitating the work of another one. Uh yeah, there's there's some there's a lot of um a lot of layover with those. For example, uh the road engineer at Chickamauga um later came to Shiloh as the chief engineer. And if you look at the mortuary monuments to Chickamauga, they look very, very similar to the headquarters monuments here. So, you know, you see some continuity there. Gettysburg and Antietam is another example. Gettysburg's engineer, E.B. Cope, um, was loaned out to Antietam uh, to do some engineering down there. And you can look at uh, the, the headquarters monuments, I believe, at Gettysburg look very similar to the mortuary monuments at Antietam. So there, you see some continuity back and forth in all of these. Now, Shiloh has that uh, monument, uh, I'm trying to picture it now, the, a very long, low, wide Confederate monument. Right, United Daughters of the Confederacy monument. Yes, yeah. and, and the United Daughters of the Confederacy were instrumental, particularly if you read David Blight's work, in uh, uh, really establishing a a version of what the war was about and what the Confederacy was about. And this exactly. kind of monument was certainly part of that effort. See a lot of lost cause in that monument, yeah. yeah. It, it, as I recall, it doesn't say anything. Uh, I'm trying to remember the words. on It doesn't talk about defeat, certainly. Uh, no, um, the, the symbolism in it is what's so fascinating. That's what it is. Talk uh, about that. Yeah, they're... they're uh, well, the symbolism all over it, but the the main symbolism is right in the center where there are three figures. Uh, two of them are kind of veiled, uh, and one in the front. And the, the one in the front, the lady represents the South. And uh, if you notice, 
uh, she's handing off a laurel wreath of victory, symbolically, uh, to these two veiled figures. One of those represents death, and one of them represents night. And, of course, symbolically what they're, they're saying is that death took away victory from the South. And, of course, it's the death of Albert Sidney Johnson, because a lot of Confederates after the war argued had Johnston lived, we would have won the victory, you know, we won the battle. The other figure represents night, and uh, symbolically night's taken away victory from the South because, as you know, the Confederates argued after the battle that, that uh, the South ran out of daylight. Had we had just a few more hours of daylight, we'd have overrun Grant's last line and won the battle and, and all of that. So uh, you can see a lot of lost cause in, in the monument. It, it, it puts one in mind of, of Pickett's uh, alleged comment after the war, asked why they lost Gettysburg. Uh, <laughs> Uh, saying, well, you know, the Yankees may have had something to do something with it, too. To it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, along with death and night. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating. Well, we're going to take a short break and uh, hear some more fine commercials, and we'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio with Tim Smith, Park Service Ranger at Shiloh and author of Champion Hill, which we'll discuss when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.